This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hofflin and Sonia Portillo. Today, the Onkisin Brief is in San Antonio, Texas, for the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. We're talking with Susan Avraft, a 25-year metastatic breast cancer survivor and patient advocate. Let's listen to the interview with Susan Raft. I'm here with Susan Raft here at San Antonio, the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Susan is a patient, but also an advocate. She's a moderator of seminars and and meetings related to uh, breast cancer. She's also very instrumental in in part of the programming that uh, is being done here at uh, San Antonio. Susan, welcome to the Onkazin Brief. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Let's start with breast cancer in general and and, and your history with breast cancer. Can you tell me a little bit about your history in, in that respect? Because, I mean, I understand that you're a 25-year survivor. I am, yes. And and a lot of history there. There is a lot of history. It, I, I will try and get all the nuggets in, but keep it on the briefer side because it, it is long. 25 years can go on for 25 years. I was diagnosed when I was young. I was misdiagnosed. I felt a lump early, even before I was pregnant or just pregnant, and it was ignored and then delivered and was nursing and kept feeling this and kept presenting to my gynecologist. And unfortunately, he kept pushing me aside and telling me it was breastfeeding related or it was a cyst until finally when my daughter was eight and a half months old, I pushed a little harder and they did a a biopsy and determined that I had a malignant tumor. By that point, it was more advanced than we would have liked. It was a a stage 3B ductal invasive tumor. And I quickly got to where I owe my life to at MD Anderson Cancer Center and to a team that I just really cherished all that they did for me and started immediately on treatment. They were doing preoperative chemotherapy or neoadjuvant chemotherapy at the time. And uh, it was in the early days, it was a phase three trials of Taxol. And so I was put on a trial. I ended up on the arm where I didn't get Taxol. I just did eight treatments, adriamycin-based chemotherapy. I did, it was supposed to be four treatments, then surgery, then four treatments. Unfortunately, I fell off the trial because I got very sick right at the time that I was supposed to have surgery. So I ended up with a fifth treatment and then surgery and then followed up with three and then radiation. And then I thought, okay, I'm done. My daughter, my husband and I thought life was going to go somewhat back to normal. And it started to, but I kept getting these twinges and feelings that something wasn't right. And within 18 months or even less, I was determined that I had uh, stage four breast cancer. It had metastasized to my spine. And at the time, which 24, 23 and a half years ago, not many options like we have now. And I was given tamoxifen, which I wasn't given up front because that wasn't the... It was not available yet. It was available. It wasn't for premenopausal. Hmm. And so they didn't give it to me until I became metastatic. And then I did that, but again, could continue to feel the spread in my bones. And within eight months, it had failed. 
And then at the time, the only option was a stem cell transplant. So they put, pushed me up to that department at MD Anderson and they tested my siblings. I didn't match them. They didn't match me. So we did an auto transplant and um, they harvested my stem cells. In February of 97, I went through the process of a stem cell uh, rescue transplant rescue. And for the most part, I, I had to go on to Texatier before I started the transplant, and that did put me into remission. So by the time I did the transplant, I was NED, but I think they did. we still wanted to do the transplant for added security. And I've never had any more cancer. I've had other issues, I think, you know, side effect related over the 25 years, but I have been on Arimidex for 20 plus years. I was on Zometa, first Iridia, Mm-hmm. It was the precursor to Zometa. And then I went off of that about four years ago because it was starting to have some side effects the other way. Right. Brittle bones, things like that. So I still am on Arimidex, but I have been NED for... No evidence of disease. And No right. evidence of disease, yes. Sorry. I'm talking like a doctor. <laughs> That's Alphabet okay. soup, sorry. Anyway, it, it's been 20-something years that I have been... Living in this world of uh, stage four, but without any active disease. Now, if you if you go back to the real beginning, about mm-hmm. 25, a little over 25 years ago, mm-hmm. you said at one particular time, the doctors didn't believe you in, initially. I mean, at one particular time, you start pushing a little bit harder to say, well, there's something is not right. That happens today, too. It right? does. It does. So if you, I think most people know their own body to some extent. To, Absolutely. To, to, to say that something is right or something is wrong. Mm-hmm. If you are in that situation, and I'm talking to to physicians as well as to listeners that may pick this up, what is your advice to them? Because you went through that whole process. It's not right. It's not right. So I guess you need to understand, I was raised in a medical family. My father was a physician. Mm-hmm. And growing up in a small town, we knew all the other physicians. So if we had an issue, my father immediately got us to the right physician and, and specialist, and we got things taken care of. When I moved away from home, that went away, that connection. And yet, it's funny, now looking back on it, why I didn't go get that second opinion, I don't know. Because I did have something inside saying, this isn't right. Something is not right. I am very in tune with my body. I was a dancer. I was an Mm -hmm. athlete. So I, I did know when things weren't right. There's this blissful point in... I was newly married and newly pregnant and, you know, wanting to get pregnant. And you're in this time of your life where cancer's not going to step into my world at this point. So it got pushed to the dark recesses of my, you know, this isn't going to bother me. The way it actually, that nagging that I mm-hmm. got was internal. But when I told my father, he just about flew down from Pennsylvania to take and, me. And you were in Texas. Yes. And to take me to, he was almost diagnosed me over the phone. He's right. that, he was that good. It was his persistence, his three times the day that I told him, he told me, you've got to get this checked out. And I knew that. There's a fear. There's a, a, a stick in your head in the sand. And no, I don't want to, I don't want to have. Was that, was that denial it, on your side or was it also denial Contributed by the physician that you consulted oh, and basically said, well, you don't oh, worry about absolutely it. absolutely both. 
I was told it was fine. Why wouldn't I believe this well-respected physician in Houston telling me there's no reason to worry about this? This is breastfeeding related. This is a cyst. You hear that once, twice, thrice, you believe it. You're not going to, why am I going to push back on that? I'm not going to go looking for trouble. Right. So for women that are not considered patients yet, if they hear this story and, and they worried that something may be amiss, what would you say to them? I think one thing to direct this to is younger women for sure. Right. I think there's there's this feeling when I was going through this that young women don't because get were, this disease. Uh, you, you, I was were, 30. Yeah, you were young when you were diagnosed. Right. But I think any age, I think it's very important to feel that one, you have a trust with your doctor. And there's things that I look back in 2020, hindsight is you know, 2020. Yeah. yeah, exactly. There's things I think about now that I wish had triggered more of a negative response with the doctor that I was seeing instead of putting all my trust in him. Learned a lot of lessons in that. I don't think it hurts to second guess. And I think women are sometimes, the whole medical system, all in a rush, right? right? Bottom line, get them in, get them out. You don't have time to answer the questions. I think it's important to have your questions ready when you go in, question things that you don't understand, ask if there needs to be additional tests, if you're not feeling comfortable with the answers you're getting, then I think we all have that internal signal and we need to respond to it. Now, you're also an advocate, a breast cancer I am, an I advocate. Am. So I am. if you look, of course, I mean, in your personal experience, the experience with the medical community, I think you learned a lot, I guess, in terms of you where, 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 where you knew things all the time. But when, when you are a patient and, and I think, or not, you go for a consult and, and maybe some news or good or bad, what would it be advisable to bring somebody along that may listen as an extra set of ears Absolutely. or maybe even ask if, if, if it's okay to, we have all cell phones and record the conversation. And, and that would be a signal if, if a doctor says no, I would say, okay, I think I need to find a different doctor. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to record a conversation. There's so much information coming at a new patient. I see this in breast cancer. I'm certain this is true of other disease types. And this isn't our world, right? We mm -hmm. don't, we're, we're not doctors. We're not in a, in a clinic every day. Doctors see patient after patient after patient. So it gets to be rote for a routine for them. And they don't understand that we're hearing this for the first time. Absolutely recommend bringing somebody with you that is a good note taker that can help absorb the information. person sitting there that's been told they have breast cancer or a, a disease, you're in this acute period of being in shell shock. So you're not going to absorb well. And so it's very important to have somebody who's kind of able to take in the information. I always tell women you are going to get so overloaded in your first few appointments don't feel bad when you get home and you feel like everything has fallen out of the, your ears and nothing has stuck because there's so much information that you, you, you just can't absorb it so all. So you, you definitely need an extra set of hands, extra Absolutely. help. And you need the ability to reach back to that medical team and ask the questions like, I don't remember what you said about this. You said something about this. I can't remember it. My my partner couldn't find it in the notes that we, that were taken. 
can you answer this question? So having that strong communication with your medical team is so vitally important. Let's take a break. After the break, we're back with Susan Raft, a 25-year metastatic breast cancer survivor and patient advocate. Each day, researchers make discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Their progress is made possible with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. Did you know that generic drugs are just as safe and effective as brand name drugs? Generics might look different, but they work the same way. And they can even save you money. Don't believe me? Ask your doctor or pharmacist or visit fda.gov slash generic drugs. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. If you're just joining us, we are today in San Antonio, Texas for the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Our guest today is Susan Raft, a 25-year metastatic breast cancer survivor and patient advocate. There was a research that was actually published earlier this year, I believe in, in, in one of the peer reviewer journals dealing with uh, breast cancer, that mentioned that about almost 70% of women were not happy with the communication, especially in, in the first stages of breast cancer, with their medical team because they did not get their needs addressed. Now, where there's medical needs, but there's also other needs in that respect, emotional needs, quality of health issues maybe even raised. That is partly to do with the communication between the patient and the doctor, the doctor being the professional. What would you recommend the doctor or the doctor or the healthcare team or the medical team to learn from the fact that things might seem easy for them because they do what you said, I mean, on a daily basis, patient after patient, right. but something that they not do what they should do. Well, it's probably specific to breast cancer, but there are so many resources out there. And I think what physicians and medical teams need to remember is they're not an island. They need to know what resources are out there. I spend a lot of time working with young fellows, breast surgery fellows at MD Anderson, and I get a week with them where I take them out into the community. They get out of their surgery suites and out of their myopic research programs that they're doing to learn what resources are out there. Because if they know the resources that are internal to their institution and know what's out in their community, then it helps take the load off of them. They don't have the time to Mm -hmm. to get into the nitty gritty with every patient. But what they can do is say, we have an incredible Komen affiliate. We have an incredible American Cancer Society. There are many resources out there. It's that Venn diagram that the patient's in the center and where do all the community support, family support and medical support cross over, but then also to know what is out there and available and to push the patients to find those things and their family to find. And then I really, really recommend, I used a support group for a little bit, but sometimes it's not even a support group, but it's a peer-to-peer support system. Mm -hmm. I think finding help with people who have gone before you 
is truly one of the strongest ways to find answers to your question, to find the relief from that lay person that can be further involved than your medical team. Somebody that has been in your shoes. Right. If you look at, because you've been also part of an advocacy organization, first of all, how did that come to be and and how important is what you see around, right now you mentioned some of the organizations, other than the medical part and, and telling people about the issues that they can expect, I mean, what is the role in the total breast cancer atmosphere of advocacy? My role? Not your role per se, but I mean, when you were diagnosed, you were telling before the program, we were talking about your sister helping and and the whole, what kind of impact does that have on the doctors, on the patient, but even on on drug development, for example? Very interesting. At the time that I was diagnosed, I think Komen and Avon and Evelyn Lauder, you know, they were the mainstays for in breast cancer. But my sister was a dancer in New York City when I was diagnosed. She would come down to help, but she wanted to do more. And she and three other dancers got together and did a performance downtown New York City, raised a small amount of money. But at the time, uh, National Alliance for Breast Cancer Organizations with Amy Langer was around and they gave the money, small amount of money, $10,000. We went on with this, it grew into a nonprofit that we raised over $6 million in the, and and it went back into the greater Houston community. But the $10,000 paid for women to go with advanced breast cancer to testify to the FDA on drugs that they could only get in Europe or Canada. And it was an unprecedented day. It was a very hostile day. The head of the FDA ended up having to write apology notes to each of the women ordered by by President Clinton because he was such a, you know what? Unkind person. (laughs) Unkind person. But it was three breast cancer drugs got pushed through that day. We didn't necessarily have the monies that we raised didn't pay for creation of those drugs. There's millions and billions of dollars, as we all know. This was just to get these women down there to testify. And it was Taxotere, it was Arimidex, and it was the precursor to Zometa, Iridia, or Permidronate, all three of which I -hmm. needed in my treatment plan. Then my sister moved to Houston, and we continued to do the project for 21 years. Made a lot of impact. I think where we were strongest was education and providing money and support to underserved population. But it's where I grew out my interest in providing peer-to-peer support. Now, earlier in the program, you also mentioned about the fact that that, that breast cancer changes a lot. Breast cancer changes you a lot in your and you hear it often from, from patients, you hear it often from people that actually are maybe married to somebody who has breast cancer. It really changes the way people look at themselves. That may have results in, in other factors, factors relating to probably intimacy or other kind of stuff that, that may have an impact on the quality of life of people. Here at, at, at San Antonio, there was a, a satellite symposium sponsored by one company and I think the Breast Cancer Org organization talking about some of those issues that mm-hmm. have to deal with that. And one of the things is that it struck me as something that was very interesting. Often the communication between husband and wife, uh, partner, may be hard, may be difficult because of the breast cancer-related issues, because of the emotional impact, psychosocial effects of breast cancer. But at the same time, and, and that's something that needs to be addressed, and one of the, the points that was made is that 
if your relationship before the diagnosis with breast cancer was not good or not optimal, then don't expect that to be afterwards optimal, right? right? So you have to work on your relationship no matter what, right? right? The other thing of the coin was actually also addressed. That was the fact that sometimes when you talk about quality of life issues beyond cancer, and, and one of the things is that I mean, you're definitely a, a poster person for, for that, is the fact that 25 years after being diagnosed, you're still healthy and, and alive. Right. Right. Is, is that now there is a desire for other aspects of quality of life issues related to breast cancer, breast cancer treatment. Some of those issues might be uncomfortable for the physician. How you deal with that? They, might, they may feel an inadequate to treat, uh, to talk about that. They feel maybe embarrassed to talk about some of those things. How, how do you deal with it as a patient? And would it be a good thing to, to try to find, even if your physician has been good to you in terms of treatment, when you deal with those issues that are very personal, would it be a good thing to ask maybe some other physician to help? I think other physician, I also think, you know, we're in a world where we're so connected, right? There's so many uh, ways to find other people that aren't in your neighborhood. And I think it may even be beyond a medical team. And it's through support groups, through online conversations. There are ways to find help. Yes, I think it is. If you're not getting the answers on these psychosocial issues from your doctor, one that may not be where their specialty is. Right. And, and it may it, not specialty. Yeah, yeah and, sure. And it, There are people that do specialize in intimacy issues or other issues that have come up. And I think it's very worthwhile to look beyond the team and, and even ask for help from your doctor to find other people to go to. But I think also finding that support within the community of other survivors, there's a lot of information that you can garner and help improve what you're your status is. There's so much that happens to your person when you go through breast cancer, physical, emotional, spiritual, and having a spouse, they may not be keeping up with all of it. And communication breaks down and you've got to find ways to bring that back. And there are people out there that are able to help with that. And it's important to reach out. And when you're struggling, don't isolate, don't pull away from it. Don't pull away from the medical part. Don't pull away from the emotional part or just ask for help. Ask for help. Ask for help. And I think if you've got an astute medical team, they're watching for these things. But unfortunately, not everybody has that kind of medical team. And so it's important to know there is help out there. By going and looking on a computer, you can find some of that help. Right. Let's take a break. After the break, we're back with Susan Raft, a 25-year metastatic breast cancer survivor and patient advocate. Some knowledge belongs to us and us alone. The way our girlfriends walk, talk, touch their hair. Details that only a sister can know about her girls. But what about our other girls? The ones we carry with us every day. Our bond with our sister girls gives life. But knowing your breasts can save it. Go to knowyourgirls.org for the facts you need on breast health. Brought to you by Susan G. Coleman and the Ad Council. Over the years, you've brought opioids into your home. They helped when you were in pain. 
and you held on to them just in case. But holding on to opioids puts your family at risk. Learn more at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. Today, the Oncogene Brief is in San Antonio, Texas, for the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. We're talking with Susan Raft, a 25-year metastatic breast cancer survivor and patient advocate. Let's listen to the interview. One of the things that, that you hear as part also at San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, because you're help putting the program together? I have been on the planning committee, and we were, I'm trying to remember, it's been probably at least 15 years that is really exciting to me. So every year I push a little bit to try and get advocate involvement into the program. Through the years, I've found different ways to kind of weave that in. This year was probably the most exciting. We put together, when you go to the planning sessions, it's quite fun, kind of a game of tennis. You just keep lobbying these tennis balls into the center with ideas and then they get tossed out and then they get, you toss it back in and, and finally it'll formulate into an, a, a solid idea. And if you can get somebody else on the committee to join in, in the idea, then you, you know, you got more support. And Eric Weiner was on the committee this past year and I tossed out the idea. And when Eric Weiner joined you in an idea, you pretty much sold it to the rest of the world, right? So um, I put out there that I really wanted to do an end-of-life discussion. And that grew into a, during the educational session on Tuesday, we did a presentation that included Rachel Greenup from Duke did financial toxicities, and Eric did an end-of-life, how to have that conversation Sharon Giordano from MD Anderson spoke on medical professional burnout. And then we had a two-advocate panel that was right there and responded right away after the three presentations were made. We had Catherine O'Brien with the Metastatic Breast Cancer Network and Thelma Brown, who is an advocate from the University of Alabama, Birmingham. It just all gelled. Unfortunately, I wish there were more medical professionals in the room. These are the conversations that I think it makes what an oncologist is. And how we laid it out was Rachel went first, and then uh, Eric Weiner spoke about end of life, and then Sharon came through with her professional burnout conversation. And the segue was perfect on all of it. And then Catherine O'Brien was in her very witty way, gave incredible comments. And then Thelma Brown kind of just sealed it all up with how she approached all three topics that were discussed. Yeah, because those three topics, financial toxicity, Mm -hmm. uh, end of life, and physician burnout, Mm -hmm. they are all related to one another. They are. Right. They are. Let's take them apart for a few seconds. In the past, I mean, end of life and palliative care, for example, mm-hmm. were grouped as, as one thing. Palliative care was something that was, okay, well, if you were going to palliative care, that was it. That has changed. Renamed supportive care. Right. But it's, it's also some of the things that, that people need to appreciate to some extent that palliative care may, may now be part of the supportive care, may now be part of the treatment regimen that starts way earlier than and, in the past. And I think... 
important and and point made very well was you build a relationship with your medical oncologist. This is the physician who is really guiding the quarterback of the treatment and beyond. And so at, when you're in that advanced breast cancer mm-hmm. metastatic place, this is the person at, that is guiding the ship until you have to take it into port, right? Mm-hmm. And it's that communication, that continued communication that has to happen from the beginning. When when that person is diagnosed with advanced cancer, it puts everything at a different tilt, right? Mm-hmm. And so that relationship is building with every appointment. If that communication's not there, that end conversation is going to be it's going to be cold. Really, it, it's going to be rough, and right. and it's going to and if you're the physician that is you know kind of dilly dallying around the the issue and not focusing in on on what's coming, that's tough on the physician. It's tough on the the patient and the family. But if you're the physician who is starting this conversation early, without giving, you don't have to give exact dates, and mm-hmm. you know, there's no way to be have the facts in in place. But if you're continuing that conversation of we have these trials that we're going to look at, or we we have, you know, this, this is what the statistics show. You don't have to be a statistic. Obviously I'm not one of them, Mm -hmm. but preparing them with conversation along the way, that last conversation is going to be tough. Right. But it's also, as a medical oncologist, it's really a gift that you get to have now, with that patient. How important, because if the patient ultimately dies of the disease, that is possible, mm-hmm. right? How important is, is that conversation for the family, for the, 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 oh. the, the partner, for the children, for the ones that survive? How important is, is being able to look back and maybe appreciate? Thelma Brown gave a great anecdote to that. So she has had two sisters that have died of breast cancer. And so when she had the opportunity to speak, she actually said, I want to, it's the tale of two sisters. And she had one sister who the doctor was very clear and very um, upfront about where, where this was going. And she said, we, went home, we cried as a family, and then we embraced it. And that sister lived until she died. Sister number two, the doctor kind of very muddied the conversations, kept trying this and we'll try this and wasn't clear. And the clarity was not there. And that sister had a really rough end of life. And it was just to have that happen in one family mm-hmm. with these two women, it was pretty remarkable kind of story to tell at the uh, session and um, really made a point of of how different the end of life can be. Right. It is difficult for the patient, obviously, and for the family, but and for the family. also for the physician to, to talk about that. Right. 
you have to learn how to do it. And right. we, and we need to we need to be teaching our medical students how to have the tough conversations. Is is that lacking in medical school, you think? Yeah, so it was brought up at the session there was a physician that that spoke about and I think medical burnout is part of that tough conversation where they're taught that you know you're infallible, you're invincible, you've got to be the strong one, you've got to be the stoic one, you've got to work all those hours. Do you have to, as a physician, you mentioned the strong one. Do you have to be the strong one? Uh, Can you also be emotionally impacted as a doctor, maybe cry with your patient? Is that acceptable? I think it is. I, I don't know. I mean, being an advocate and working in the metastatic world and letting those patients become friends, it's very hard. And so I think physicians dealing with it, you know, so much more than I do as an advocate, I think they have to have boundaries. Right. They have to keep that medical professional relationship there. You can't become friends. And unfortunately, every once in a while, one of those patients comes into your world and becomes that friend. And that's I think, really hard. Uh, yeah, that's probably one of the hardest things to experience. Right. That, that I have to agree yeah. with that. So um, I, think, I think there's a learning curve on how to keep that boundary. The, the boundary being professional, being the, the strong one when it comes to, right. for somebody, the, the shoulder to lean upon. Right. 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 And, and help the patient and their family. I don't know that the doctors cry with their patients. I do know that the doctors probably cry for their patients. Right. Right. And, and I can totally imagine with that. Yeah. So you also mentioned another aspect. I mean, it's financial toxicity. There are treatment is expensive. Right. And insurance is not always able to cover the things that need to be done. So there are some organizations that, and we actually had an interview with some of the organizations about half a year ago uh, that really help patients to recover from, from that. And it's not the patients, actually the family to recover right. from financial to- toxicity. What are some of the things that can be done or to rem- remedy that, if there is any? Oh, well, we're opening <laughs> up a can of worms on that one. Um, well, I, I bet I do. <laughs> um, you know, I think, unfortunately, it, it, it's an expensive disease. The cost to, you know, do these trials is outrageous. Um, and, and unfortunately, we're, we're hitting smaller and smaller populations as we um, try and get more um, personalized in how we're treating Which is, patients. Is it a good thing? It's good and bad. Personally, I hate to see these drugs that are, well, there was a, a three-month, you know, extend of life. I, is that worth it? You know, I, I don't know. And and there are going to be patients that say, I'm done. I'm done. You know, my body can't take anymore. Yeah, because those three months that may extend somebody's life, Life might be Could important, be, but but they're wretched if you're spending it all in a bathroom and or in the hospital with pneumonia, and that that's to me. I wish we could know when enough is enough, mm-hmm. so that we can spend our final days not sick or, or sp- spend it with family and right. at least have some good memories. Right, right. Let's take a break. After the break, we're back with Susan Raft, a 25-year metastatic breast cancer survivor and patient advocate. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. 
It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. All across the country, people are coming together to speed up what we can learn about health. The All of Us Research Program is calling on one million people to join us as we try to change the future of health. Visit joinallofus.org and find out how you can become one in a million. This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. If you're just joining us, we are today in San Antonio, Texas for the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Our guest today is Susan Raft, a 25-year metastatic breast cancer survivor and patient advocate. When, when you look at in, in, in financial toxicity, but also treatment and palliative care and, and end of life, you mentioned about trials. In some cases, especially in the metastatic field, there may not be a treatment option. Right. Right. I mean, because they're, we finished. We, we've done everything we can. If you look at the options for trials, there may be trials out there clinical trials that are being proposed uh, maybe for a newer, maybe personalized treatment. What's your advice about that from an advocacy perspective? From Would it be a good thing for a patient to really look for those things beyond what a doctor may be able to advise? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think I, I think you have to be your own best advocate. And I think, you know, the, the st- stuff that it, breastcancertrial.org is doing and and providing information and and helping people find trials that might not be at their uh, institution in their local area, but where they could go to get that is very important. But there comes a point where you have to know when travel to that destination Mm -hmm. or having to go relocate in a destination far away from family and and support of your community is really a cost and a sacrifice. And where does that, where, where's the tipping point of that's not going to be good. But I think it's absolutely important. And it's important that physicians also help their patients. We don't have anything here, but let's look and see, is there something out there that might work? Well, we've covered a lot of ground, I think. We did, we did. Like, I mean, I have tons of more questions for you, but I think we have to leave that for a potential follow-up. I okay. mean, things about, well, there you go. I mean, I will, I will give you a little bit of things to think about, like things like disparities, for example, or, oh, wait, yeah. I mean, those are so, so difficult. And some of the things that becomes more and more into the news, right? I mean, to, to talk about those issues. Well, we are going to see, I think, a lot more about, you know, th- there's, uh, a new release on professional burnout and financial toxicities. Those are hot topics right now. And I think we're going to see more and more of them. And we've got to figure out something with right. our medical care. It's, it, it, it's outrageous. And how do we, how do we bring how costs do we, down? Right. I mean, and let's, let's find out if we maybe in an upcoming uh, uh, meeting again, I mean, like can, exactly. can talk some of the, there may be positive developments that are right. out there and uh, see you again healthy. And, and, and I mean, because that's really... We'll make a day. Okay. Absolutely. Sounds that sounds good. good. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you.
We are here at uh, the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, which is held uh, from uh, December the 10th till December the 14th, 2019. And I'm here with Eric Rosenthal. He is uh, the editor-at-large of Ongazine and the Ongazine Brief. Eric, you had an opportunity to uh, also listen in to the interview with Susan, Susan Raft. Tell me some of the things, uh, because you know Susan for a long time. Yeah, it was, it's interesting. I was here in 2012 um, covering the meeting for Oncology Times, and I found out that for the first time ever, a non-physician or scientist was getting a faculty position to present a, uh, make a presentation at the meeting, and it turned out to be Susan. And so I did a story at that time sort of talking about her breaking the uh, the glass ceiling here in terms of, of having that special prestige of being represented. What I found interesting about that also is the fact that advocacy has long played a major role at San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, and I thought it was also recognition of the value of advocates as peers in terms of right. speakers. And then I've been seeing Susan most years when I'm here covered her another another session she did a couple of years ago. So I thought, you know, I wanted to sort of get an update of how she was doing. What amazed me years ago, seven years ago, was she was a metastatic breast survivor who looked great, looked very healthy and younger than she is. And here she is seven years later, uh, looking the same and living with the disease for that long period of time. Now, one of the things she pointed out was she's been pretty much disease free, but she's, of course, suffered a lot of the um, side effects, brittle bones and other things. Well, the other thing, she also had a bone marrow transplantation back in 1997. So she was sort of almost a pioneer in that as well. You can see from the interview how articulate and well-spoken she is, but she's also just a, a poster person of living with this disease. One thing though she had mentioned toward the end was talking about sort of the tipping point. And I think she was sort of getting at, you know, how much treatment is enough treatment? At what point does one stop and make those quality of life decisions? I always talk about prolonging life versus prolonging death. And I know I had this in my case with my own mother when she was dying. Quality of life, I think, is, is, is critically important. And we have to recognize that going on and living should be worth living. And many times patients make that decision, but family members are resistant to it. And so I, I think that it's, it's, it's a very delicate subject for a lot of people. But as Susan said, you don't want to spend those years sick and vomiting and in pain. And sometimes months, right? Months and months. And so I think it's a difficult decision. It's ultimately the patient's decision if he or she's capable of making it, but it's something that reality should um, look at. And I think sometimes I know that years ago, oncologists, many oncologists just were, you know, wanted to know that they took care of patients and, and didn't want to see somebody, you know, giving up, which is not giving up. Again, it's the quality of life equation. And the point is you want to make the most of it. And I think Susan is literally a living example of somebody who has had lived the most out of her life. And first of all, she's healthy, so she will go on for many, many, many years right, to come. Right. But, but if you if you are in a situation, and I think that's made that very clear, I mean, if uh, some of the drugs that are out there and some of the treatment options that are out there, and to some extent it is, is exciting news, on the other side is what are you doing with that news? May prolong life for maybe th 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 three months, six months, or at I, I, least. I've right? been involved in the oncology community for more than thirty years now, and actually started as head of public affairs at Fox Chase Cancer Center. And I'm back in the late 1980s. It was interesting to see how healthy cancer patients at a good cancer center looked because they were getting the proper nutrition support and other things. This was only at a handful of 
centers at that time, which had supportive care and things of that nature. And then you'd go to other institutions, some community hospitals, and you'd see people just, you know, just very, very frail and ragged. So I think, I mean, truly cancer has changed in terms of how its appearance Mm -hmm. and how people live with it rather than necessarily die from it. And I think that it's been especially interesting to watch, again, how healthy many patients are with something that can be a deadly disease. And I think it's also reflective of society in the 21st century to some degree. The decision, right, that, that people may have to make, I'm sick. Am I going to continue with a treatment that potentially, because there's no no guarantee, right, that potentially may prolong your life for just a few months? Or the alternative, right? I mean, what you also see is to to say, okay, well, I'm done with a treatment. And uh, on top of all the other treatments I've had, I mean, I'm done. I'm tired. Let, Let me try to enjoy my family, my children, my my spouse for just a few more whatever days, weeks, months that that may be. That is a very painful decision, very personal decision. But one of the interesting things that Susan said is that that is something that a physician should be be able to help guide. And that conversation about the, the, the two sisters in the family she was talking about really bring that home. One was treated by a physician that was really reluctant or unable to have that conversation. The other was definitely very open and, and very accommodating in that conversation. And, and, and you see the difference. So it's one of the things that, that really, you mentioned that in, in another program too, it's important to address that in the educational realm. I mean, another point here, and, and, and that is Susan was lucky enough to be living in Houston, which happened to have MD Anderson. Right. And it's not so much as today, but back 20, 25, 30 years ago, having a good NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center around, at least for the initial diagnosis, if not a, a secondary, tertiary, not diagnosis, but Treatment opinion, and, yeah, opinion, makes a big difference. And so my friend and colleague, Nancy Brinker, I'm writing a, a book with on uh, the cultural history of cancer, had the same story with her sister, Susie. Coleman. And that's actually the founding of the... Right. And it was basically because she was at MDS. Now, Susie ultimately died of metastatic breast cancer, but this was also almost 40 years ago. But she at least had the opportunity to be at a good center. And I think that's really important. The thing today that's changing now that I've seen over the years is you're having better care in the community as well. But that's also stresses the importance of meetings like San Antonio, like the American Society of Clinical Ecology, like ACR, to continue that medical education and keep people up to date. And that's making a difference as well. Well, let's end the program there. I mean, in terms of the communication, the education, and the overall collaboration between patients, their close ones, their family members, their, their spouses, spouse partners, as well as the medical community. And really that that close collaboration to emphasize that as one of the key things in in progressive medical care. The Oncazine Brief was produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofflin, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California 
at 949-923-1660 or visit our website at oncazine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.